for uh, a treasure's method of presentation and uh, I'm glad to have you um, right now um, for this uh, new uh, podcast issue and uh, first of all without further ado I would like to know uh, what was your uh, musical epiphany how did you start to be to be interested in music and begin to widen your spectrum uh, on getting into every kind of different genres Well, um, hmm, it's an interesting question, but uh, the first kind of two things, well, I mean, there were three kind of musical epiphanies, perhaps, um, mainly uh, being exposed to a lot of pre-Beatles British chart-pop music, kind of from my uh, paternal uh, English grandmother and listening to some, you know, golden oldies type bargain bin CD comps in the car and like Adam Faith and then obviously you know first generation rock and roll people like Buddy Holly and stuff like this and then my deceased uh, maternal grandfather uh, introduced me to quite a lot of Italian pop music which was uh, a very big formative influence like you know twisty kind of popcorn like uh, stuff like Peppino Di Capri and Rita Pavoni and Adriano Celentano and, um, uh, you know, Little Tony and, and, and things like this, uh, which also was, you know, quite a big thing. Um, and I think then um, at some point uh, my father just got me a bunch of kind of punk and new wave singles, uh, which was also a pretty seminal uh, moment for myself uh, too. But it was also quite funny because um, there was this sort of strange kind of self-defeating kind of logic at play because uh, my sister, my well, my parents are not really, not really into music. They're just vaguely, I don't know, um, not entirely square, but they're kind of normal-ish, I suppose. Um, and, you know, they were vaguely into maybe like... Uh, kind of indie alt like cult rock music and new wave and punk and stuff but on a very on a very surface level non-committal level really um but i think when my sister who's a few years my senior 20 something i can't remember my own sister's age which is pretty bad but you know they tried to kind of foist you know uh, uh, thrust upon her like this idea of good music and some things like oh the clash and joy division and obvious things like this and she kind of obliged somewhat and listened to them and kind of like them or whatever you know um funnily enough she's now getting more into kind of rock music in a vaguer sense i suppose um of the past but mainly she was just fairly uninterested they got her like a sub Danzette, you know, kind of like Ardos, consumer level, disposable kitty record player, and it just sat behind her sort of bedroom door for for kind of years. But what was hilarious is I guess they were sort of completely deflated, uh, 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 you know, demoralized, dispirited, all the Ds, 
Um, and they, you know, so by the time I was born, they made absolutely no effort um, to even vaguely, cursorily um, try and get me into cool or, or good music and stuff because, you know, they thought they'd fail. Uh, and in fact, it had the inverse effect, which is amazing because I became, you know, consumed with the very most fervent, you know, uh, intense obsession for music and culture and um, art and such, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, another actually, a, another kind of grand epiphany, I should say, possibly though, one's actually more recent, but maybe the seismic moment that made me fall in love with pop and unpop culture uh, was Singing in the Rain, which is still my favorite musical of all time, one of my very favorite movies. I think Make Him Laugh is like, pure punk rock performance art like actionist danger performance a guy smashing his head into a wall you know it's brilliant you know and yeah all the other songs are amazing too um and yeah but recently it was quite weird because i used to say uh you know i've always i've always decried uh, um sort of the term eclectic i mean people use it and i kind of know what they mean and and some people might describe my taste as eclectic or perhaps i would have friends who i hold in some regard who say oh i have eclectic taste but for me i, I thrust aside this this term I, I would like to eschew that term because for me it connotes a kind of uh non-committal hippie approach of like oh yeah you know as long as it's good, oh, 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 I listen to any kind of music. Mm. And despite the idiomatic or stylistic disparity in all the different types of music I listen to, I would say it's all tied together by certain threads and, and, and energies and mm. spirits and just, you know, some untrammeled need to just fucking go for it and numbing sensuousness and, and, and just kind of urgency and, and attitude and energy and things like that even in a non-linear more oblique sense in like you know like for instance i i think you know like buddy holly is most winsome and sweet and soft is it's more like um powerful and searing than like you know a lot of extreme metal or something so i don't know i've got maybe a slightly perverse attitude to these things too but yeah for me, the term eclectic would connote, uh, it would sort of imply, uh, indicate a kind of no sense of criteria, which is very much not what I have. Mm -hmm. I, I like lots of different genres, but it's all tied together, which is why when people say to me, well, this is what, you know, this is the thing. People used to say, oh, you know, what, what's your favorite type of music? I would unequivocally always say punk rock. Mm. You know, because if I was listening to some African pop music or Egyptian sort of thing, you know, I was looking for a sort of punk quality and that was what informed my sense, you know, and I, I had no uh, discomfort with just saying my favorite music was punk or what I played or did was punk rock, you know, but I used to think it was the kind of be all and end all, but I started to, I had a kind of more recent epiphany. Uh, with a you know a kind of recent obsession with 50s rock and roll mm -hmm. uh that i was thinking that maybe you know i don't know where punk begins and rock and roll ends really mm -hmm. because i think they're very i think they're very very similar spirits and maybe they're then maybe they're not to be conflated exactly and there are certain things that are slightly different 
um, between their vague kind of energies overall. But at the same time, I think rock and roll was so key and it really, really, really is everything because I think, you know, there are hot rhythms and movements and, you know, subcultures and styles and looks and sounds before rock and roll, but they were kind of, you know, and there were aspects that were maybe subversive or seditious to some extent, but maybe they were rebellious or or controversial. Uh, and, and had a transgressive quality because they were nearly because they were new, mm-hmm. or 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 just certain certain things. But mainly, there was another point to them. Whereas the difference between, say, okay, flappers or, or, or I don't know, maybe jazz before it's 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 a thing that is kind of rebellious also. Mm-hmm. Whereas rock and roll is the very essence of rebellion as a means into itself you know it's the microcosm of of iconoclasm defined and embodied mm. and you know and i used to get very torn and confused because i think oh i love rock and roll so much but then at the same time i also love really iconoclastic weird kind of noise and no wave and industrial and like you know uh, uh white house mm. drop and gristle and stuff like this you have this very kind of rockets for ass lickers sort of attitude but what I have now actually come, I've come to the conclusion that however much they don't want to admit it, I think, and I know this is becoming vaguer and vaguer, but I think, you know, rock and roll evolves and moves and, you know, changes forms and, and, and stuff like this. And I think that, you know, being anti-rock and even anti-rock and roll because of the the set and forget stasis that it might have dead ended into. For me, like anti-rock stuff, like noise, kind of whatever, for me that is rock and roll. You know, that is the, that's the next, that's the rock and roll after rock and roll. Rock and roll then became the opposite of rock and roll, you know, so, I, yeah, I came to the conclusion that it was kind of everything and that's, that's, that's starting to, you know, I've had that recently, and it was quite a it was quite a key um, thing for me. I don't know wh- how you feel on that exactly, but you know. And uh, so let's listen to um, an example of your um, music with um, "It's Best to Believe in Nothing," and then we come back for, to his very um, thrilling and deep discussion. Shut up, I'm just one shot, get away 
yeah, I think it's the thing at the heart of everything, you know, mm. in a weird sort of way. Um, whether, you know, and people might not want to admit that, and I think that's fine because, you know, that will be part and parcel with maybe this, a certain iconoclastic package of being anti-rock. Mm. But, you know, I just have a knowing smile and wink or whatever, because I, I, I see the, the same thing. If you say what I mean. Because as well, um, I send you, um, I won't add you, but I send you some uh, information about this uh, current interview. And I was thinking as well about, uh, you know, when the, the who, when they say, uh, hope I die before I get old, or the Rolling Stones sing Street Fighting Mind, etc. And uh, I even know they are part of a. Uh, of establishment and uh, so they do uh, and even Peng go, go go to museum and uh, you know and the uh, academic establishment as well is getting interest interest in, into punk rock etc. So do you think that that's a good thing or in a way he he, he won't kill uh, rock and roll with um, the way the rock music is be, uh, whatever happens or um, even if it's anti-system in a way uh, it will end up always end up uh, you know it's a very situationist thing to be uh, recuperated on show in schools and uh, museum etc. I think um, I think it's certainly fun and funny um you know but like you say kind of corny cheesy naff tacky rote cliched whatever and a bit depressing but it probably it probably is unequivocally objectively bad and all of that stuff um this kind of inducting it's like it's saying oh we accept you now and that's not what we want really but then once once that happens you then find the new thing mm -hmm. i suppose to interact that but that's always what happens you know always things become like you know they're made fun of or neutered or is or is anesthetized you know mm -hmm. and then they become accepted and then there's a the new thing you know mm -hmm. uh, just as be just as like um I mean, I absolutely love lame teen idols and stuff. Uh, and I think it's actually, there's a lot of seditious quality uh, to it because it's very much a key part of like, you know, it was the the birth of teenage culture, etc. Um, and there is a lot of subversion in mindless fun and dancing and, you know, romance and stuff. Um, but at the same time, people often use kind of as an annoying cliche totem pole of rock and roll becoming safe, you know, they say like, oh, then there was Fabian or whatever. So in the same way that, you know, rock and roll then became safe and then you've kind of got like, you know, and I, I often love and find it very charming and funny to kind of, you know, exploito establishment answers to counterculture you know like punk exploitation psych exploitation and all the fake punk and and all this sort of stuff and parody you know hippie exploitation and you know moral panic kind of b movies and things like this but at the same time once something gets it's it's you know it's a really cliched obvious thing once something gets commercialized or you know co-opted by the establishment you then move on to the next thing mm. i suppose um or you just continue to do it but do it for real and say and just refuse to accept that you know this is not what we're doing this is not us you know uh i think that i think it's funny because i 
don't want to be like a cliche kind of try hard kind of like oh I'm so punk type thing you know because there are people I really really do love and a lot of the people I hold in the very highest regard but at the same time I do find it funny you know and and quite good and true you know Johnny Rotten when he said like you know I don't have any heroes they're all useless which is hilarious because he then became a self-fulfilling prophecy of disappointment um but at the same time like I I kind of I kind of weirdly agree I'd say especially when they live too long I don't think your heroes can let you down by I know it's a, it's, it's 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 a real it's a stupid cliche in that tortured artist thing and whatever but honestly you know like Elvis James Dean or whatever like there's so much mystery and question marks and what ifs and Sid Vicious and stuff like that and you know and then the fact that death saves you from disappointment mm-hmm. in a way so i would probably say you know god bless their cot socks but you know maybe it would have been cooler if the rolling stones or who died in a car crash and uh, you know in the early 70s or something not that i wish that upon them it would have been cooler and um, talking about um Postmodernism and the end of history. Uh, it was before you was uh, born, I guess, but uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you, you obviously know that during that time, the, the music press on uh, the music industry was very much interested in, in England, especially into the new British music press or media. You see, there's a lot of. Um, Going back to the past, like the Mojo, Uncut, uh, not not saying that it's bad. Uh, I'm not putting them down, but it seems there's a change uh, uh, between my generation and yours when when uh, things supposed to go forward. Absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Simon Reynolds notes like a noticeable paradigm shift mm. uh, in the '80s about how you know for the first time he actually started buying reissues. Um, And of 60s stuff and prior to that you know he was overwhelmed by the slew of constant you know new music and um you know uh, post-punk bands and whatever and all this sort of stuff now um i think i think it's interesting i mean he also explores it in that retromania book he published which is kind of skyrocketed to being the very best book ever of all time in my opinion it's brilliant it's very inconclusive but you know okay so, so yes so we were talking about the retro mania on the on the fact that the current state of music industry seems to be uh, going into circles yes well it's not even so much that it's linearly focusing on the past of course there is that i mean if anything i think yeah i'm still very much in love with the past and i think we can you know mine the past to create a new future perhaps you know and and decontextualize and do weird things with you know influence and accumulated mass of weird things that we put together to then create something new i i i don't have a such a problem with that i mean you know perhaps the myriad retread articles on Uh, the Beatles or Bob Dylan or Neil Young or whatever. I mean, I do find a bit tiresome. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's not so much the problem. I mean, there is, yeah, that annoying kind of pipe and slippers, middle-aged man, sort of white guy, kind of Mojo magazine, uh, sort of, you know, put my feet up and read about the Beatles type kind of attitude to a lot of 
music journalism. And there's some good articles here and there, and maybe some stuff from people I very much like, like you know Bob Stanley or John Savage or whatever, and magazines like that. But I think one of the problems with uh, current bands is that um, there is actually the false pretense that they're doing something new. I mean, I would pr- rather I pr- prefer a band to sort of be quite, you know unequivocal about and just admit uh being perhaps derivative or formulaic you know because it's, it's complicated because on the one hand you do want to be futuristic and you want to create something new but then also at the same time you know sometimes rock and roll is just about being great uh and not necessarily reinventing the wheel you know because then sometimes you get something boring like radiohead you know in, in, in that sense But at the same time, yeah, it's complicated. And also you can kind of be, there's also more subtle ways that, you know, not necessarily musicological, musicological, um, innovative in the sense that it's just a, a certain je ne sais quoi, frisson or energy, uh, um, to something that you put across that just feels new and fresh and invigorating, you know? Um, I think a lot of these, you know, I call it I call it mediocre plus. I actually call it also call it Radio Six Dadcore. But you get a lot of these bands, and they're sort of very, you know, there's this very surface level, slight kind of edge to it, perhaps, uh, for people who are not that into music obsessively to just be into and think they're into something quite underground or cult or slightly obscure or, or dangerous but it's not at all it's very safe and also radio six dacker on that land is generally a lot of the same bands as mediocre plus perhaps uh these kind of trendy bands uh but it's got there's a different slightly different dichotomy uh, uh interface dynamic relationship between the artist and the, the the consumer and the sense that a lot of these things that get played on bbc radio six um You know, by, by Mike, Mark Riley, I mean, he was an important pro- proponent of underground um, music at one point, of being in the fall. Uh, but, yeah, um, and also weirdly, like Iggy Pop and his radio show was also quite a key trafficking uh, in this kind of thing. And what I think about is sort of these middle-aged dads who perhaps, you know, at one point in the late 70s or early 80s were into post-punk or whatever and had their finger on the pulse and, you know, did crate digging and looked for weird records and were actually really into things and, and listened to John Peel and all these new and exciting bands. But, you know, now they've had kids or they've retired and they're somewhat jaded, so they don't have much time to really look for stuff. Uh, and they just, just they just take for granted. Oh, oh, okay. Well, if 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 the Guardian says so, that this band punk is alive and well, and it's shame or idols and sort of all this slightly boring, turgid, kind of lumpen um, stuff, then oh yeah, I mean oh yes, oh it's it's punk. But it's it's not even like they're so stupid. It's not even like they're stupid and completely culturally impaired to the point where they don't see it. It's almost like they've just given up on actually trying to look for it for themselves. So they just they just take it for granted or or something. And you know, and then there's the aesthetic of these bands and stuff. Um, they're very horrible kind of like short trousers, but not not in a not in like a sort of 
Japanese pensioner or Jacques Tati kind of way. It's, 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 there's something about it that's just quite hard to stomach. It's kind of skatery the way the, these bands are. White socks, which is actually, which is also good in context, but not in this way. And they often wear batwing sweatshirts and stuff and you know like with the really baggy arms which in context you know as a sort of 80s prep euro trash kind of thing can be quite cool but not like this mm-hmm. there's tech sweaters too as of 90s things these very cunty kind of john lennon glasses beards um beanie hats or watch caps i think they're more like yeah. um, usually like mustard yellow or, or orange and they have a bum bag or like fanny pack as they're called in the in the u.s uh, very high up, like under their, like, you know, um, under their armpit or something, you know. Um, and yeah, I do find this aesthetic very repellent. And what I find funny is like a lot of these people are supposedly trapped, like, um, sorry, supposedly very kind of right on or liberal, progressive, PC and stuff. But in terms of their demeanor and manner, when you hear them speak or, or just how they are and their dynamic with their friends and their cliquey, insular, in crowd group of friends they're just generally very trad boring kind of laddish macho macho manly blokey bloke geezerish kind of you know guys they're guys but they're cool guys you know or something i don't know and i and i don't really like that and also another one of the problems with it with these bands is they're generally they're generally called post-punk mm-hmm. but for me i mean and, and like you know i do like lots of maybe 70s or early 80s kind of records that are maybe a bit derivative of, of Joy Division or something, but are just good, or, or, you know, whatever. But however, at the same time, and, you know, when, if something's good, you can repeat it. Like I said, it's always been one of my big biggest pet peeves, and I've always hated it when people use formulaic as, as a derisive term, because for me, that's analytical. It's not qualitative. It's not like, you know, it's not... Is it formulaic? That's not the question. Is is it a formula that deserves being, you know, repeated or, or in what way? And maybe there's a way it doesn't quite land and isn't quite right. That would be the problem, not the fact that it would be formulaic. Or, but then again, it is also complicated. Just you know, timing, c- context, bias, obligation to some agenda, ulterior motive I've got, or you know, culture at a certain time, and all these things depend on everything and it's, it's it's very complicated but anyway my point was with post-punk what i find an issue you get a lot of these bands and they they're called post-punk but they're thinking of post-punk as a genre rather than an, an attitude so they're thinking oh you know post-punk is a type of music in which you know you'll have you know a no wave guitar over a disco beat or or you know like something spiky jerky guitar sparse minimal driving bass disco drums or like very minimal driving drums and spoken word kind of spoken over the top and and stuff like that and spiky guitar but you know post-punk is not a genre uh it, it it's it's a way of approaching um music it's it's and culture and art and really anything it, like for instance you know in a weird sort of way, you know, Paisley Underground and um, whether you like them or not, but more 60s revivalist bands from the late 70s and and 80s were post-punk, but in a regressive rather than progressive way because they were actually part of punk and in, in a 70s sense and new wave and 
this new attitude, but they were recognizing those facets and those, those, you know, that ideological mark of distinction or whatever in music that had come before from the sixties, you know, whereas, um, other people were doing the opposite and they were being progressive, you know, and, and trying to create completely new music or mixing non-rock styles with rock or whatever, you know, and, and all this sort of thing. So post-punk just means like the punk attitude um, applied to something non-linearly punk rock that's not necessarily one, two, three, four. It does not mean a genre of music that's defined by certain characteristics, you know? Mm. Uh, it's much more of an attitude. So, you see what I mean? Yeah, I get it completely. So, um, I, I suggest we listen to Unfortunate One song and uh, uh, to, to see your take on music, and we go back to this uh, discussion. Cause he's the unfortunate one. Thank you. 
Okay, so yes, and um, we're talking about um, p about these uh, formulaic people, but uh, you know what um, Mike Love says uh, to Brian Wilson when we come up with uh, Pet Sounds. He says, "You fuck up the formula." But <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. And so, what's it, it, it's important in a way to, to fuck up the formula. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, that's that's funny. I um, I use "Don't Fuck with the Formula" um, as a chorus for one of my songs, um, inspired by that. And I, I I don't know. My heart sits on a paradoxical crossroads, as I often say, between you know completely diametrically inverse and opposing impulses uh i often i'm i'm attracted to the ideas of paradox and contradiction and oxymorons and stuff in culture and society and art and music and stuff like that and what fascinates me often is that i find extremes um often dovetail with each other you know they're actually closer much closer than you know than you think and they can actually often blur into each other you know mm. um and and i find this yeah i find this very interesting and i think yeah i'm torn between a desire to regress um and you know and create something completely new at the same time but Yeah, not no, so no self-relation. But in regards to my own work and demarche or whatever, I like to think <coughs> perhaps perhaps the world is ending, um, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bookend um, the end of the world with sort of something. And, and you know, and I'm not saying it's good or bad or it sucks, it's terrible, it's great, whatever. But I'm just trying to do something that is the in, instead of necessarily creating a new new movement or even rehashing an old one i'm trying to actually distill the very essence of everything important and iconoclastic and rebellion as a means to itself in one project so a really schizophrenic sort of mass of of, of everything and as an aspect of everything that, that that's that is in some way iconoclastic and rebellious and weird and confusing and strange and, you know, and transgressive. Um, and I'm thinking, um, I think if, you know, it's impossible to do something new rather than like, rather than trying to just rehash something, I'm actually just trying to, distill the essence of everything that's ever happened into one project, basically, yeah. which is a daunting task, but I'm trying. And uh, it's maybe as well you because you look uh, it's a, it's the privilege of your generation of people who are living right now, but it's more easy uh, to find and to listen to very different music from different countries and uh, on time timeline. But uh, let's say 30 or 40 years ago, when uh, the access to French pop, for example, was more difficult. And uh, so you pick up a song by Daniel Gérard, D'accord, D'accord, so we'll listen to it. 
And after that, uh, I come back to a conversation with you and, uh, um, and ask you about uh, your uh, interest into French pop or how it can uh, regenerate uh, along with other countries uh, the British uh, music uh, idiom. The, the paradigm seems to have, to have changed and uh, your generation and you as well uh, uh, got a more positive attitude. Do you think that the things have evolved uh, into that direction? Well, it's funny because often when people are, and again, this is not any kind of self-fellatio in any way, but, you know, when people are maybe you know, surprised or trying to process my kind of, uh, what they might deem to my encyclopedic knowledge of, of music and culture and different things and knowing a lot about stuff at such a tender age, they often say, you know, maybe because they're trying to process it and, and, and just deal with it and out loud, they're thinking out loud or whatever, and they make a flippant joke or, or not so much a joke, but just a, They always mention, uh, and I always find it quite snide, with snarky, smug, condescending, patronizing thing. And they often say, oh, well, you know, it's much easier now, you know, than it was. Like, you could just look at anything mm -hmm. on the internet. Um, yeah, but that's not what I was saying to you. <laughs> I was just saying... <laughs> no, no, no I, 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 didn't, I didn't think that. I thought it was an interesting question. But on a similar note, mm -hmm. when people say this, But I always actually, I have to contest this claim because I think the internet is a hugely useful tool um, 
but I don't think it's necessarily made things easier at all because when you get a book on something, it's a very, I've actually found myself depending more on, shall we say, analog forms um, of research, like reference guides and books, um, more than the internet. You know, so in that regard, it hasn't really changed. And the reason being is, is when you get a book, it's so streamlined and compartmentalized the information and, and what you want, and you know what it's going to be about. And you can look to a certain chapter or the reference thing in the back, or you know what it's about, and it's about blah, blah, blah. blah. But whereas, you know, like on the internet, A, I, I'd say everything's there, but no, it's not even close to having everything on there, I'm sure, really, to be honest. But because there's no criteria, and I know there's AI now, which I don't understand, and algorithms and all this sort of stuff, you know, I mean, sometimes it's hard enough to look for a piece of empirical data, mm -hmm. um, you know, because it just doesn't quite understand it, and it, it just picks up on words rather than actually what you want, or, or you know, and keywords and things like that. But, you know, it's easier to find maybe something more solid. But if you're looking for an actual, uh, uh, a less linear point, like, trying to find a piece of writing or, 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 or on a something or just wondering if there was a certain epoch defining watershed moment in a certain country or culture or if there was this subculture that existed at a certain point as maybe a, or there was a blah 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 you know that's really hard to find because mm -hmm. the computer doesn't understand what you're actually looking mm -hmm. for you know um so i would actually say to be honest the most the useful tools on the internet are comparable to that of a huge reference guide or book they're often like some really great websites or youtube channels and things and and run that are very curated because that's the key thing they have to be curated i think because otherwise this oversaturation of information actually is impossible to navigate and use you know um but at the same time it has made things a lot easier and certainly in that you know you can access things but yeah also i i find personally you know there is that i actually much prefer discovering things in the wild mm -hmm. um i prefer looking for records in um you know i also you know i make some exceptions for things i really 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 want but generally i try to buy records quite cheaply mm -hmm. and i have many i have so many records but i really try not to spend that much money on them and for me that's also part of the thrill mm -hmm. you know um and for instance that daniel girard um record i got on that on an ep of his which i found for 50 cents in belgium um and like i i yes i like finding stuff in the wild and i like finding mysteries and things like that and you know um and there are for instance some quite cheap you know hit records and things which i really really want and i would easily just buy them off the internet by actually pining for the moment where i find them because i actually find that's a is a much more rewarding and exciting experience yes you yes know. yes because you know, uh, you know i was thinking uh, sorry but uh, because i think that um, as well the collector the so-called collector circles you know the record collector convention yes. stuff can be quite anal retentive and not very rock and roll uh, instead yes, of going into the wild <laughs> no no totally and i also i mean this is the thing as well because personally 
I know a lot of people, you know, um, music obsessives who I l absolutely love, and they might just, on a more factual basis, describe themselves as a record collector. But I say to them, no, please do not call yourself a record collector because you're not a record collector. You, you're a person who loves music. For me, a record collector is someone who, you know, just doesn't care about music. They just care about a commodity, you know, and it's completely detached from any love. I mean, there are some, like, I would even say there are more collectory impulses for people who still love music, but they make sense because perhaps you might want to get the myriad variations of a nice picture sleeve because it's cool or an original pressing or, or something like that. But ultimately, that still stems out of an intense love for something, you know? Um, it's not It's not like, but when you actually need to get things that you don't even like or blah, 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 I mean, this just, just seems slightly kind of absurd to me uh, to a certain extent. Uh, and also, yeah, I mean, as well as that, I, um, I think that... This sort of yeah, anal retentive kind of attitudes to stuff can be quite frustrating and stifling. Um, and I think that yeah, there's a lot of difference between a collector and someone who is an obsessive regarding in regards to music, you know. Um, and I, I sort of lost my train. I was going to say something. What was it? Oh yeah, but in regards to my exposure to French um, 60s pop music, yes. I it's kind of like an uh, an extension. Uh, I kind of actually, I do absolutely love Yeah Yeah, um, but personally I'm actually even more um, interested in the more maligned and forgotten about kind of twist era uh, type stuff. You know, uh, I, I'm very much, I think there's a very punk quality in like liking this stuff, as well as me, it being the most appealing sound ever to me. It's also coincidentally, actually brilliant, by the way, to buy because no one wants it. Like, really, really, no one wants it. It's so cheap. Um, and uh, and as well as that, I think, yeah, it's quite iconoclastic because it's so sort of lame that no one cares about it. And it's quite the punkish sort of thing to like. But I, I, I love a lot of French pop music as an extension of my interest in sort of, you know, Belgian popcorn oldies and like um uh kind of teen doo-wop moltshire pop twist dance craze type stuff uh i also have a very uh, this kind of cultural fetish for um for later uh, songs generally um mainly outside of the us and the uk hugely in france but also a lot of other countries um and especially continental europe but really everywhere where songs on singles and albums even although you know albums are kind of less what this sort of music's oriented around uh but i love the sort of labeling of songs with different dances different dance crazes where i'll say you know twist holy girly madison and stuff like this on the back and jerk shake and i think I find this brilliant because it's a very useful way to navigate records when you're looking at them because you can actually go, you know, because it, it's kind of a post, like, it's kind of a post rock and roll thing, this, this fixation on dances, but it meant that even lame records, like Vietnam, and I mean really bad, like Polka, like Waltz, whatever, crappy tourist old people records were labeled 
with um, these, you know, dances on the back, which means you know which ones to avoid and you know if you're going to like the beat of a record because you can get it. And I think there's a very noticeable paradigm shift as it, the 60s, you know, draws to a close that, you know, the more beat stuff, you know, you see shake, jerk and still maybe hully gully and things like that. But at the same time, you'll start, you start to notice um, that there's less and less and less. And, you know, I'm perpetually torn about the Beatles. Really, really am. I still continue not to know what to think of them. And I don't think I unequivocally love them or unequivocally hate them. I've gone between those different things. Sometimes I feel completely indifferent. But a universe exists within my relationship to one song of theirs, you know, mm. let alone their whole body of work. And I don't want to be a cliche. And I don't feel like I am either in regards to either of those camps. Like, I, I think it's kind of boring to love them. I also think it's boring to hate them. And I also don't feel like I quite do either of them anyway. However, like, it's funny because they started the garage band kind of revolution, you know, um, but they also killed that amazing Brill Building era of, like, rock and roll and teen music and teen idols, manufactured teen idols being, um, you know, having songs written for them, great songs and, you know, all these bands had the terrible, terrible idea of trying to write songs themselves, you know, um, which ruined everything. You know, thankfully, I think the French had it more sussed, at least, for quite a while. Um, and, yeah, and then there was that, and then despite starting the garage band revolution, they also killed it with Sgt. Pepper, you know, and you can say garage bands didn't cease to exist, but you know, they started to have larger pretenses. And I mean, I like, you know, pompous, um, so, lots of psych and prog and stuff for different reasons, you know, and whatever. But at the same time, like, it sort of ushered in this wave. And I mean, you know, there is so much art to pop music that is beautiful, but I also think there's so much art and beauty and deep meaning in the disposable and trashy and camp and kitsch. So I think, that, you know, art does not operate linearly, I suppose. I think, you know, the least arty can be the most arty, I think, you know, less consciously so. And I think Sergeant Pepper ushered in, you know, like 50 minutes of gummy fish paste noodling, you know, that you're supposed to listen to how important it is because Rick Waveman rolled his joints on the gatefold or whatever, you know. Mm. And like, it's sort of just... Yeah, it just made it, it's, well, oh, some rock music, pop music is now a serious art form. People need to write their own songs. People can't dance to it. You have to listen to it. You have to sit down and contemplate every ebb and flow and nuance of it, you know, and oh, it's very, very serious, you know. And what I think the beauty in art of quite a lot of disposable pop music is it's art, but it's art in real time. So you experience all these feelings and emotions and you extract all these things from the music whilst it's happening, whilst you're dancing to it, whilst you're going through all these things with its soundtracks and stuff. And I actually think something like Sgt. Pepper and the seriousification of rock kind of takes the art away from mm. pop music because it becomes less natural in a kind of weird sort of way. Um, you know, but anyway, I, I, I absolutely love, like, you know, all the French twist 
guys and girls and absolutely love yeah yeah it's, it's, it's kind of more like a groovy femme um and more more 60s mid 60s later 60s extension of this french impulse i think still but you know i love like all the covers and all the silly dance songs and like richard anthony and um daniel Girard and claude francois and johnny alliday and things like this and um, and Sheila, I love Sheila, Frank Alamo, uh, Sylvie Vartan, um, and uh, who else? Oh yeah, and like all, all, the, all these people, I, I absolutely love them. And also I like um, all the, love all the sort of sculpy tone or however you say it, uh, all those like promotional videos and stuff, those are absolutely amazing, you know. That, yeah, that Daniel Gerard one. Is I actually only just recently found out that it's a cover of a Scandell song called Shake, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and I think it's I think it's quite beautiful. I like the sort of nonchalantness um, of the title refrain. You know, a very casual okay. Um, and I think the video encapsulates, you know, kind of the very essence and microcosm of Gallic cool. Like you know, slightly unbuttoned shirt like sitting down at a cafe table with a cigarette in hand or kind of gesturing non-plussed hands movements and kind of and just you know Paris in the 60s and also there's this amazing bit where he lights his cigarette just in time for the key change and it's absolutely brilliant it's a really really great moment in that you know he has some other great great ones i i also another thing i actually love is that the twist and teen dance craze and pop type music in france and the rest of the world but in france became so prevalent that a lot of these lame traditional musicians and like folky kind of guys had to intensify themselves accordingly so you'll find quite a few accordion twist records like you know Yvette Horner and stuff would make these kind of like twist records and cover like all these songs like A Present Tu Peux Ten Aller or whatever and all these sort of things like that. You know, and I, I, th- I think that's brilliant. It's also actually it's quite funny really because often people say, oh, I hate accordions, I hate blah, blah, blah. But I think that's a kind of contextual bias uh, because you know, you associate accordions with lame, old-timey music. Mm-hmm. But the sound of an accordion, I mean, I like it. It's just like a airy, weird instrument. So to actually have it in a fun context makes it fun. You know, like, I, I, I've got some accordion twist records and they sound good. And it just shows any instrument generally sounds quite great when you make it sound good i've got one i can't don't know how to pronounce the title of the artist but it's like aimable aimable like yes yeah yes and he does like it got a great accordion-led version of le comedien mm. which is possibly in my opinion along with la leçon du twist uh possibly the absolute and utter like french twist anthem um, but it's kind of a Lalaisson du Twist, which was originally Twist in the Twist, uh, which I think was first done by Daniel Girard, actually, is actually kind of a twist standard everywhere. Like, there's, there's many versions of it in Spanish, Portuguese, Czech, you know, mm-hmm. all these sorts of things, you know, it's quite crazy. But yes, I love French pop music. It's absolutely best, brilliant, amazing. 
this uh, show is drawing to a close, but uh, before we'll uh, um, listening to the last track I've selected about uh, called uh, Pauvretiers by uh, Guy Cabet, a uh, late uh, 70s um, kind of uh, French jazz pop. Uh, I would like to know um, about you, you know, it's a bit of, of a lame question, but uh, at the same time it's go with the evolution. Do you think that you Your music is evolving, and do you have a project of, of doing more single or an album, or, or how do you think? Uh, how do you feel about your music right now? What you what do you want to do with your music right now? Yeah. To well, um, the thing is, I find a lot of people are very insecure about things, and it means what they do is they're too scared to fail. Um, so they don't do things. However, me, I'm someone who is intensely scrutinizing and doubtful about everything. And I'm very, you know, I think about everything way too much, if that's possible, to be honest. Um, however, I think about things while I'm doing them. I don't fret, you know, I still, I make mistakes and I learn by failing. I'm making mistakes and I work things out as I'm doing them. I don't get too scared and then not do them you know so i'm just shooting in the dark and i would yeah i reaffirm my kind of earlier mission statement somewhat um and plus as well as that yeah bruno and the outrage presentation will prevail and we are recording an album in january um which possibly uh might be out on either one of the two main major indie record labels either rough trade or heavenly we're in the midst of possibly turning some kind of publishing deal and be recorded with a guy called sean reed mm. who um i must plead ignorance to his other production work but he's of repute and very competent nice guy and he seems to have a lot of empathy for our sound and you know what we want um and he's a member of latter-day texas midnight runners funnily enough um And uh, we are playing in November uh, in Rough Trade and some other places, I think, possibly with the uh, professionals, which for the Sex Pistols connection, which is mm -hmm. quite funny, so some balding punks, probably. But, you know, still, whatever, it's an opportunity to play. Um, and, yeah, um, and that is that. I also, yeah, have like always got like a million silly little side projects too, like a kind of 50s greaser teenage dreams ballads meets bashy hassel atkins juvenile delinquent jd 50s rock and roll one called bruno and the foolish hoods but we change our name occasionally to other things like the dingley boys and tigers play too rough possibly some kind of 60s punk project too at some point and another one with some other people but always those are things i've got thing with my best friend Joff and all that um and he's also in the 50s type one but mainly it's you know Bruno and the Outrage and that's the presentation is the main most important band we'll be recording uh, an album soon which will hopefully be out soon enough and that's yeah that's very exciting but um yeah hopefully only time will tell what happens really Okay, and um, very nice to speak to you. Uh, you know what, what we say in France when uh, in showbiz on Art Circle, uh, when you have a new project, we say merde. Yes, shit. Shit, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's for good luck. But we don't say good luck because uh, people think it's, uh, it's bad luck to say good luck, so we say shit for you. 
Well, that's fantastic. In Brazil, you kind of say like a caralho, which is more like a, just an exclamation. It means dick, but it's kind of like a positive thing too. So there is a similar thing, I guess, romance languages kind of have maybe a similar logic. But anyway, it's been lovely to speak to you. Uh, thank you so much for having me on your show, etc. Um, oh, we stay in touch, yeah. Yes, let's stay in touch. Okay, great. Goodbye. Goodbye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Come on, let's go, go.